Murphy Murray. I am a cannabis educator and extraction consultant and the lead of research and development at Sano Gardens. That was perfect. You're listening to the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Hey, everybody. This is Jason Wilson with the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in once again. Uh, So today I'm joined with Murphy Murray, a fellow cannabis educator and also a cannabis extraction consultant. And uh, today we're going to be talking all about, um, well, we'll see what we get into, but primarily cannabis extraction. Uh, Thanks so much, Murphy, for being willing to come on the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm really stoked. Uh, Our paths hadn't crossed uh, before now, um, so this has kind of been long awaited for me as far as I've followed some of your work and seen your classes like from a distance. Um, so it's cool to finally connect and, and, uh, talk about common interests. Um, for those that aren't familiar with some of your work and, um, cause your, your background's kind of diverse. Uh, do you mind kind of sharing just a little bit about, um, some of that background and what led you into getting into specifically like the cannabis chemistry and extraction and all of the work that you're kind of focusing on now? Yeah, sure. I started in the cannabis industry um, when it was fledgling in Colorado. So we had the caregiver structure um, in 2009, and we started seeing retail dispensaries open up, but there wasn't licensing for it. And um, it still kind of mimicked what California has yeah. going on in at the time in a lot of ways. And so, um, you know, I got involved on the retail end. I lived in the Vale Valley and we wanted to sell high-end cannabis products to those high-end medical patients. And in 2010, licensing started. And in Colorado, that meant vertical integration. Mm. So being from a marketing background and working on the retail side of things, I had no preparation for an extraction lab and certainly no preparation for large-scale cultivation. And so um, it was all just something that was kind of thrown at us and we had to get involved. I did my best to delegate where I could, but the lab was one of the hardest ones to, um, to delegate out because there, you know, a lot of people had grown for decades, Yeah. but there wasn't much for extraction historically. Um, You know, like a lot of people were doing bubble hash, but that is not even, you know, in the same department, especially at the time, you know, we were, uh, we were just starting to see things like um, amber glass, which was like a shatter made from ethanol, you know, yeah. and we were starting to see the butane honey oil and we were still really just calling it honey oil at the time and not even really referencing how it was being made because everything was still a big secret yeah, for yeah. a really long time, which is part of the reason why education is so important to me because the first three to four years of my cannabis career, especially in the extraction world, there was nowhere to get good information. There was yeah. a couple of hard to navigate forums mm-hmm. with a lot of code words and screen names. <laughs> right. And um, it, it was really difficult to use that information in a practical way. And not having that chemistry background, you know, was certainly a disadvantage. But at that time, we weren't doing chemistry. Mm-hmm. We were barely extracting, you know, material. We were leaving a lot of cannabinoids behind. We were not purifying anything and we had no analytical testing to support it. So, you know, the concentrates that we made, we had no potency data on, we had no Mm -hmm. pesticide data. We had no heavy metal (laughs) testing. We, you know, I couldn't tell you how many milligrams of THC 
or anything else. It was all anecdotal. It was all descriptive. And, um, you know, I look back at that and just get anxious about all of the products that I made (laughs) and sold that I wouldn't do today because we just didn't have the tools. So, you know, fast forward a few more years um, and the internet makes things a lot easier. Uh, You know, 10 years is a a long time in terms of internet development. And um, so more information became accessible, which is good and bad. A lot of bad information became Mm -hmm. accessible, but what is more relevant is that we have the social media aspect of it. And so now I could actually network with real humans. And as more states became legalized, people were less afraid to actually share what they were doing. And um, like real consultant jobs started becoming a thing. And so we started to talk a lot more and develop methods. And that's where I kind of got into the extraction space, um, you know, in a very much more serious way, Mm -hmm. because we started to actually have real standards to pursue. And I had started to meet the type of people who were doing things that I wanted to emulate. And from there, I got involved on the equipment end of things in um, 2014. I started working for Extraction Tech Solutions, which was one of the only hydrocarbon equipment manufacturers at uh, the time. And I started doing private consulting. From there, I just became fully immersed in, in the world of extraction. So from uh, you know, just straight up cannabis extraction to also the burgeoning hemp industry. Yeah. And, you know, we've just kind of gone all the way from black oil to white powder. Um, <laughs> right. In, yeah. In the last few years. Yeah. That's, it'd be uh, fascinating to kind of see that laid out on an image timeline. Oh, um, my Facebook types... memories can be scary sometimes. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. What is it that, um, particularly about extraction now that's really driving your passion to kind of continue that focus um, in that arm of things? Um, I think one of my favorite things about extraction has always been that, um, you know, it's it's very objective. You know, once Mm. we started bringing analytical testing into it and started actually doing chemistry in the labs, it was really rewarding because I could perform a process, I could get results and I could repeat those results, Um, you know, and compare that to like cultivation where the, you know, every step you take today, you see the results of that weeks, months ahead of, uh, you know, that point. So there's no instant gratification in cultivation, whereas extraction is instant gratification Every 30 minutes, I get to see the results of what I've achieved. And so um, it feels very productive. And uh, it also gives me a lot of room for error, which is very exciting for me because I love the experimentation of it. Yeah. With cultivation, even just having a table that you try out new nutrients on can affect literally the rest of the garden. Whereas with extraction, I can have a new idea I can try a new piece of equipment. I can tweak a process. I can make these changes, you know, minute to minute, day to day, and get to evaluate the efficiency. And so the potential for growth mm-hmm. is just phenomenal because um, it's it's exponential. Every single yeah, day I yeah. can try something new and, you know, every new test result gives me 10 more questions to go chase down the rabbit hole. So mm-hmm. it is constant change and very fast moving, which I find personally rewarding i'm the type of person that rearranges my furniture often i love (laughs) change and extraction is nothing but change yeah yeah i could see that it'd be really exciting to be caught up in that um 
accelerated process of refinement, refinement of technologies and process and everything, you really get to see it unfold in a way that that's unique. Um, when you were learning about extraction, what were some of the resources that you found most valuable um, to kind of understand what you needed to do to take things to that that next level? I know Skunk Farm is obviously one resource that we all probably yeah. know pretty well. That's a huge one. Uh, but what were some others that yeah, you Yeah, I mean, those, those online forums were enormous. But through those online forums, I actually got to meet um, really competent people. And yeah. I think both 10 years ago and even today, the mentorship from finding mm -hmm. someone smarter and better than you yeah. is the most valuable. Like I look back on my career to some specific individuals who brought me in and were willing to, you know, share what at the time was like trade secrets, you know, like yeah. the, um, the things that we just didn't discuss uh, out loud in part because it was illegal, but also in part, you know, to keep our brands, uh, you know, unique. Mm -hmm. And those people were enormous for me. Um, I had a couple of chemists who were involved early on that were really helpful in explaining some of like the basic safety issues that I would never mm. have even thought to ask questions about probably without their help. Um, not to mention just some, you know, industry pioneers, people like Nick Tanum of Essential Extracts, who, you know, was willing to teach me how to make bubble hash in his kitchen and, you know, like get me involved in this industry when it was still barely an industry, you know, we were barely for profit at the time. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, I think that's really, really good advice to anybody listening that's trying to figure out how to kind of break into the space. I've always been a fan of mentorship too. That's, that's how I've gotten to where I am as well. It's like, I can think of like really three key people that, you know, I just, happened to sort of serendipitously come across that felt comfortable and taught me things or gave me chances that all of a sudden, you know, progressed into things you can't imagine. Yeah, um, absolutely. And we all, we all learn that way. Um, there's this common misconception in cannabis that like, you've just got to be good at it. Um, that like some <laughs> right. of us are just going to like stumble into a garden, get gifted the right clone and the rest of it's gravy, you know, or yeah. Or like there's some kind of magic secret to it. But really, like, I've got one math teacher who made algebra click for me. Like, I, yeah, I remember yeah. two English teachers that, you know, made an impact on my love of literature or my language today. Most of the time, like, we need someone else to help us, you know, cultivate yeah. our passion. And, and I think that's really valuable. You know, for example, the person who started my extraction career, you know, Nicholas Tanum, uh, he works in a completely different section of the industry now, you know, like I learning under him, um, you know, kind of gave me the insight that I needed to know where I wanted to go and that it was mm, different, you yeah, know, like, yeah. you know, these kinds of lessons are something that I wouldn't have learned if I didn't get that exposure early on. And, you know, that's as an educator, that's one thing that I see most in students is that people think that it's supposed to come easily. Mm -hmm. but most of the time if you're going to learn something you need a teacher and that's right. perfectly okay you know so seek out a mentor that you can have those open conversations with it's so enormously helpful like the internet yeah. is still just talking to a wall a lot of times <laughs> yeah yeah it you is. know like like google Absolutely. is too much information if i ask my friend what to google they're going to give me better <laughs> search words <laughs> so. right right yeah no it's a really good point and uh 
a big part of the role of a mentor is sort of helping you craft perspective. And right. so, you know, when you work with someone like that, that's knowledgeable, um, you walk away seeing things just totally different. And so you recognize different opportunities that you would have never seen before or recognized your where you fit, I guess, you know, yeah. into a grander scheme of things um, that Absolutely. can be really, really valuable. Yeah. Um, how did your, what sort of extraction technologies did you work with along the way? You've mentioned a couple, but um, I know, isn't your focus now primarily on um, liquid um, hydrocarbons? Is that yep. right? Absolutely. So my focus um, since about 2011 has been, um, you know, exclusively butane and propane. Um, part of that comes from the the trends in the industry. You know, most of the smokable products mm -hmm. on the shelves are originating from butane and propane because it's one of the few methods of extraction that allows us to preserve the acid form of our cannabinoids, the non-decarboxylated yeah. yep. products, which I think you're going to hear a lot more about um, in terms of, mm -hmm. you know, medical applications over the next year here. So um, I've been, you know, predominantly focused on that. However, the development of the hemp industry called for larger scale than butane and propane is currently poised to accommodate. So I had to come back to ethanol extraction mm -hmm. um, in a much more sophisticated way than the ethanol extraction that I started with, um, you know, many years ago. So, um, you know, while I got into it with, you know, the most accessible stuff, you know, just straight up bubble bags and water hash, mm -hmm. um, I've been on the combustible solvent end of things for most of my uh, cannabis career. Yeah. And one of the, I guess, issues that people usually raise with hydrocarbons is the safety issue. So, and you mentioned earlier yeah. that that was a big part of your learning is trying to figure out how to do a lot of this work safely. So... Uh, yeah. What are some of those key um, safety issues that you have to be aware of working in that environment and what do you do to mitigate those? Sure. Well, I mean, the the first thing that I've got to bring up is, um, you know, that we we have to respect the chemical solvents that we use. Right. Yeah. And I think that one thing most people getting into the industry don't take the time to value and appreciate is just reading a simple MSDS sheet. Um, you yep. know, reading the warnings literally on the labels of the products <laughs> yeah. that we use, because a lot of times a person shows us how to do something and then we just try to repeat their process and we yeah. don't try to even give ourselves the whole picture. Um, you know, it's kind of like when you learn to drive a car, like someone teaches you how to, you know, hit the gas and hit the mm -hmm. brake, but you don't necessarily learn how the engine works. If right. you did understand how the engine works, you'd be a better driver. Um, yeah. But a lot of times we leave that first part of the puzzle out and we just teach everyone to be operators, which is not quite enough information. Um, I'm one of the few people that I have met um, with the number of years of experience that I do in extraction that didn't start with open blasting um, <laughs> these solvents. I yeah. always operated within a closed system. I never, it never occurred to me to get involved in open blasting because the first thing I understood about my solvent was that it was highly combustible. And so I needed to protect myself from it. Right. And so my uh, career has always been, you know, on that equipment side and that technology side because it just came to me as a given. You know, the people who mm -hmm. first introduced me to solvent-based extraction showed me CO2 extractors and, um, you know, closed ethanol systems. And so it just never occurred to me to go any other route. Um, I started right out with that understanding of like every new solvent, you need to read what it says because some solvents are 
poisonous and make you die. And mm -hmm. some solvents are just flammable. And so then they're dangerous. And some things are inert and not a big deal. And mm -hmm. understanding the difference between them is your life. Uh, right. Yeah, <laughs> you know? I know. That's a... Uh, <laughs> The issue of needing to read the uh, safety data sheets is something that's come up in multiple ways in my world, because on the extraction world and also in the product manufacturing world, um, just for uh, trying to understand the safety of ingredients that are going right. into cannabis products. So there's been, I don't know, I've seen multiple examples on Instagram uh, where someone will actually post a safety data sheet and claim that, like, look how safe this is because it's grass. And then you look at the intended uses and it's like, topical application like mm -hmm. maybe yeah. hasn't even been studied you know to be right. consumed or inhaled or something like that um so I, yeah i think that's a really good recommendation to start is actually read your safety data sheets for your materials you're handling yeah absolutely it's, it's the most accessible information in the world and so uh without it you know you're absolutely um, at a disadvantage just from day one. You know, one thing that I always recommend, even with like cleaning products or dry materials, is that you've got to pay attention, um, you know, to like the cleanup procedures, to the waste yeah. procedures. One thing a lot of gardens are very guilty of is improper waste disposal. And nobody talks yeah. about it because no one read the information that said this is really harmful to just dispose of and put down the drain. Yeah. So, yeah so much that's dangerous to aquatic wildlife um right you know you you lose the biodiversity of life in a river stream then you're you're destroying the quality of your water overall no um, absolutely and in the same way as that you know paying attention to what you put into your waste when you're growing can actually help you make better decisions with regards to what you put into your plants we can mm. have that same perspective on efficiencies in the lab if we pay attention to the waste disposal because paying attention to that waste is actually what inspires the equipment manufacturers to invest in better solvent recovery. Um, right. It's all about, you know, in, on one hand, keeping yourself safe, but on the other hand, being a good steward of the mm -hmm. planet um, and finding, you know, a commercial or industrial application that doesn't just save you money, doesn't just keep people safe, but actually, you know, reduces harm across the board. Yeah, yeah. And how would you describe, um, given that you've kind of been around all of these different extraction types, how would you briefly summarize some of the pros and cons to those different extraction methods? Like what's sort of driving those decisions of why people are choosing one over the other, CO2 over hydrocarbons or over ethanol? Sure. Um, so the first uh, question that everyone has to ask themselves is what do you want to make? Yeah. Um, your end product is really important. And a really quick and easy way to simplify that is, um, does your final product need to have the original terpene and flavor profile from the plant? Yes or no? Um, and, you know, a yes to that answer means that you're looking at CO2 or uh, liquid hydrocarbons. If it's a no, then you can look at CO2, liquid hydrocarbons, or potentially ethanol or heptane or, you know, some of these other mm -hmm. products. Um, if you, uh, the other question you have to ask yourself is what type of cannabinoids are you looking for? Do you need yeah. the acid form? Do you need those, um, you know, crystalline solids or are you looking for a decarboxylated product because certain extraction methods are also more likely to give you one or the other. And so, um, those two questions will usually shorten your list right away. And so from there, you know, ethanol is 
one of the best solvents suited for scale currently. And the reason for that is that so much ethanol extraction already exists in other industries. It's considered food safe. And yeah. so there are, you know, regulations and equipment in place that we can just straight up copy and, um, you know, put into effect for cannabis. However, the boiling temperature for ethanol and, um, you know, its interactions with water are really problematic, uh, especially depending on the qualities of your inputs. And so you lose terpene content almost no matter what. And you are also um, at risk for some degradation and some pH issues, um, extraction of undesirable compounds okay. like sugars. And so there's a lot of things to consider that um, are going to lead you to, first of all, a decarboxylated product, um, but also more than likely an isolated product. It's going to be harder for you to have a clean oil that doesn't call for a lot of post-processing and cleanup. Yeah. I, that seems like a, um, maybe that's a, like a misconception uh, in some circles that you would actually have like a um, um, wider diversity of some of these compounds in an ethanol extract or even a CO2 extract. Um, but that's something I've run into in my own experience, at, you know, working in some of these labs and seeing like for CO2, a lot of times the material is um, decarboxylated before it ever, mm -hmm. you know, goes into the right. extractor. Um, yep. and, and so obviously doing that process, you're losing terpenes, you're, you know, anything volatile, you're losing a lot of volatiles, um, especially those really lightweight ones. And then with ethanol, before I before I really got involved in some of this work, I didn't realize how much um, refinement went into ethanol extracts to clean them up. Right. Um, and Absolutely. now I've, and now I've learned a lot of that pathway leads to just making distillates or isolates. Um, exactly. So um, yeah, it's it's fascinating because before I got experience in some of this, I had heard um, I don't know just people speaking very generally that, um, well, of course your ethanol extracts are going to have more phytochemical diversity in them, mm -hmm. um, or with CO2, you know, that you can target these fractions and it's like, yeah, that's true, but everything comes at a cost with, sure. with each of these, uh, technologies. Right. And so, you know, the, the drawbacks are, you know, definitely very chemical. Um, but the benefit is that if you want to process 5,000 pounds or more per day yeah. of raw material, ethanol is your current best option. Um, however, that 5,000 pounds that you extracted that day isn't ready for sale that day. It's, right, yeah. um, it's still in solution, most likely. Yeah. You know? It's a big picture. Um, exactly. So, um, you know, there's still more days in that final product production end. Mm -hmm. um, if we look at CO2, CO2 is a very complicated product because CO2 is a flexible solvent. Mm -hmm. um, it relies completely on the operator and the equipment having a plan and sticking to it. And so CO2 is capable of being an excellent uh, solvent for terpene extraction. It's also capable of extracting a lot of water and wax and nonsense, <laughs> yep, yep. Um, just depending on you know how that equipment is used and how efficient that process is. A lot of people decarboxylate their material, like you mentioned, um, to avoid the water issues, which means sacrificing terpene content, which is a bummer because uh, CO2 is capable of doing probably one of the best jobs yeah. with terpenes as far as solvent extraction would go. Um, but, you know, it, it comes generally with the cost of still requiring winterization in ethanol. Mm -hmm. So yep. I tend to put CO2 and ethanol together because 
whether you make your crude with ethanol or you make it with CO2, you probably are going to be following the post-processing yeah. path um, that's the same either way, which would be that winterization and filtration and then probably, most likely, distillation. Right. Um, yeah. And the, the exception to not going to distillate is usually um, still just to be in that raw oil form. So maybe you might not distill, but it's still only available for pens or for, you know, food. It's still not, um, you know, it's still a limited product as far as what you can do with it. Yeah. Um, you know, and so hydrocarbon is a lot more flexible in that regard because while it is a very small input batch size, we're doing, you know, 500 pounds or less per day in the average lab, um, you know, which is not massive scale. We're not going to yeah, feed the yeah, world right. with that. Um, however, I don't have any of that week-long post-processing that follows it up. So while mm -hmm. I might only get to process 500 pounds that day, I could sell the oil that I made that day the next day, um, yeah. which is, you know, a big difference. And it's um, something that, you know, we often skip when we look at our production plans is, mm -hmm. you know, how many, uh, you know, like we think about how much can this equipment do you know, right. per pound, per hour, yep. whatever. But we have to bring it all the way back and say, okay, well, all of this equipment in a straight line is going to take how long from raw material to packaged and for sale. Exactly. And hydrocarbon is absolutely the fastest for that. Butane and propane evaporate at very low temperatures, which means we get the acid form, which mm -hmm. means I can go to Delta 9. I can distill it. I can make a tincture. I right. can make edibles or... I can make all of these other things that I can't do um, as easily or as quickly with CO2 or ethanol. Yeah. So that um, that post-processing flexibility is the primary advantage there. It is, however, combustible. And yeah. so, you know, with ethanol, we have the flammable issue. And with CO2, we have the high pressure issue. Mm -hmm. With the liquid hydrocarbons, we have both. Yeah. So, um, you know, the risks are significant and the risks are only mitigated via equipment and safe workspace there's you know there's no safe way to just be careful <laughs> you know um yeah and statistically speaking uh for everyone who is going to listen to this and think well i've been doing it for years statistically speaking the more days you've gotten away with it the closer mm -hmm. you are getting to the day when you won't it will come and so uh you know the the safety risks are significant because it is combustible in nature. However, yeah. it is a clean extraction method. Um, butane and propane don't dissolve molt. They can't mm -hmm. carry over uh, you know, water as easily. So um, the final product, because there's, it's you know, very easy to remove the solvent and the solvents are food safe and our exposure to them is um, generally non-toxic, they're very safe products. Whereas with ethanol, um, high levels of residual ethanol uh, can certainly be harmful, especially for oral ingestion. And, um, you know, that high level of water content in a lot of CO2 products can lead to microbial growth. Yeah, and so yep. we have, um, you know, some, you know, some pros and cons both on the processing side as mm -hmm. well as for the actual consumer. Because if I need a product that can store for a very long time with limited degradation, a hydrocarbon extracted product probably has a better shelf life than an ethanol extracted product um, or a CO2 extracted product based on literally just their moisture content. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a excellent, excellent summary. Um, and I think something that 
um, consumers take for granted is that things like um, microorganisms can grow on extracts in certain um, right. environments. I've definitely seen it. I mean, working in the testing lab, I'll, I'll never forget the first time I saw a what I mean, it was essentially a moldy CO2 extract. Mm -hmm. um, I'd never come across that before. But, you know, now I realize it's less common now that people have kind of learned more, you right. know, how to do their processes better. But um, yeah, that was something that was a shock to me. And I'm sure is a shock to some people listening that haven't um, encountered that before. And I'm glad you touched on the um, issue around the safety of the solvents, because that was going to be something I was going to ask you is um, some people, when they're first learning about extracts, they feel put off by the, the hydrocarbon extracts because they feel like there's a higher safety risk due to the solvent load in right. there. Um, so do you have any... Um, advice you could offer listeners that if they're worried about solvents in a product, what sort of levels should they sort of be looking for? What's typical in a, I mean, ideally in a well-purged extract, you maybe wouldn't have anything detectable or very, very low parts per billion. But uh, mm -hmm. what are your thoughts on that? If someone asked yeah. you like, you know, what's a safe exposure so level? The the first thing that um, everyone should do uh, is the first thing I mentioned in this interview, go read mm -hmm. the MSDS for the yeah. solvent that you're wondering about, first of all, because the health risks that are associated with it are gonna be on that sheet and it gives a range. So that yeah. gives you the acute exposure range, you know, the like, you know, moderate, um, you know, or the persistent exposure. And you wanna see what your, you know, best and worst case scenarios are. You know, that acute exposure of, uh, you know, 200 parts per million butane in your product is largely non-harmful. Just breathe fresh air. You're fine. Right. Um, and that, you know, day-to-day -day exposure of over 5,000 parts per million for eight hours at a time or longer does lead to dizziness and, um, you know, some other issues. And so you want to see the, you know, the best and the worst. You want to see how much of this is it going to take for, you know, nausea versus pass out versus mm -hmm. stroke and seizure. You know, right. like you want to know what the actual ranges are. And that information is not a secret and it's not up for debate. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah. like for those solvents to exist and be used, that information has been studied. Now it hasn't necessarily been studied for how hot of a dab you're going to take at home and how many grams you're going to smoke per day. Um, you know, these applications aren't necessarily standard, but our human exposure um, from inhalation or ingestion has been studied for these solvents to actually be sold and be um, legally allowed for us to use in extraction. Licensed labs can't use solvents that haven't been tested in that way. Right. Um, so, you know, so that data exists and I would encourage everyone to go read it right away because it's easy um, for us to all have opinions mm -hmm. um, about the parts per million limit. And a lot of those are based on state regulations, which were formed from the right. opinions yeah. of people. Yep. <laughs> with no yeah, sometimes specific they're pulled, criteria. Yeah. yeah, sometimes they're pulled from really weird places. Yeah, Right. And so those numbers are not based on human studies. Those numbers are not based on, um, you know, known and proven and, you know, calculated potential harm. They're just numbers. <laughs> you know, they have, you know, about as much data behind them as the safe speed limit for a road. 
You know, like maybe 35 is safe in your car and maybe in my car, 45 is safe. And maybe with my mom driving my car, 45 isn't safe. You know, like maybe there's more variables than just that number. Um, So it's hard to rely on that because you're going to see a really wide range. And so the state of Massachusetts says 10 parts per billion is -hmm. what's safe for butane. And, you know, the state of Oregon says 5,000 parts per million is the safe amount. And, you know, who? neither of them are in charge of how much is actually safe for you and your body. And so the, the numbers are a very difficult one to compare. Obviously, we want to remove as much of those, uh, you know, solvents as we possibly can. However, most of these solvents like butane, propane, CO2, and ethanol are food safe products. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we get into things like pentane and hexane and heptane, Um, you know, or some of the compounds that are being used for conversions like iodine or toluene, like we've got, we've got some more significant health risks. And so, um, and those actually are more common in like CBD products where there's no regulation, Mm -hmm. scarier issue that we could get into later. Yeah. Um, but you know, for the most part, uh, you're going to have those solvents that are used listed on the label. And so you can do a quick MSDS check and read what the best and worst could possibly be. And then compare that to the parts per million. And, you know, we can put that math together and we can say, you know, right. 5,000 parts per million for eight hours a day of exposure to butane is what, um, you know, the MSDS recommends as being dangerous enough to actually make you ill and make you dizzy. Um, and so if you are smoking a product that has 5,000 parts per million in it, don't smoke it for eight hours a day. Uh, You know, like now we can start to at least say, okay, well, that's something that, you know, a little a dab at a time might add Mm -hmm. up to that acute exposure of, you know, however many parts per million. Um, You know, every time we uh, flick our lighter, that's about, um, you know, 5000 parts per million briefly. And so we're being exposed to butane and propane. It's in your air. You know, CO2 Mm -hmm. is in your air. Ethanol is in almost every flavored food product. Right. Yeah. Um, You know, like anything that has um, artificial colors probably Mm -hmm. contains ethanol, you know? So like a lot of these solvents exist. It's not realistic to fear them. Um, And it is really important to judge them with math. Yeah. Um, You know, like you've got to pay attention to how much is there. There's a big difference between 20,000 parts per million of butane and, you know, 20. And so you want to you want to pay attention to those numbers as best you can. Um, But I would also encourage anyone, especially anyone who's smoking concentrates to listen to their body because Mm -hmm. the solvents themselves are known, are studied and are tested for what we cannot provide to people right now is a comprehensive look at the potential conversions that are happening, the byproducts of some of this exposure, just heating up a solution that's extremely, uh, you know, high pH in ethanol that contains a lot of water could create some, you know, converted byproducts that become really dangerous. Um, you know, using iodine for conversions is, uh, you know, a, efficient to a certain extent, but it creates a bond with uh, cannabinoids that isn't tested for. And now we have Mm -hmm. a cannabinoid compound 
that has been bonded with a little bit of iodine and that can get to your brain and that could probably end your life. We don't know, but that's not something that would be tested for. Right. And so the risks around these solvents, um, you know, are, are the greater concern. And since we can't necessarily apply a lot of data to that right now, listen to your body. If it hurts to smoke, stop it. Yeah. Yeah. If it's uncomfortable, if it makes you feel weird, don't keep doing it. There are so many options out there that you should, you know, listen to, you know, the the cues that your own physical chemistry is giving you. Um, for the most part, like our our instincts are generally right. Yeah. And, you know, even terpenes yep. can degrade to benzene. Yep. So, you know, like the our favorite parts of cannabis could kill us. Um, yeah, exactly. So you've got to, you know, like be as educated as you can about the solvents. You don't have to know everything about extraction, but in the same way that you would look up a hormone that's added to your milk, you could mm-hmm. look up a solvent that's used in your extraction and then just pay attention to what your body tells you. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a, a really good point. You don't have to know everything, but you should at least have the skill of knowing how to find the information when the time comes, um, mm-hmm. if you need to look that up. Yeah. Um, well, shifting gears a little bit away from the safety side and talking about the products. One thing I wanted yeah. to ask, cause it's something that, um, I hear a question about a lot related to extraction. Um, what affects the various, um, I guess we'll say consistencies of hydrocarbon based extracts. Cause it's well known that there's a wide variety mm-hmm. of, sort of types of hydrocarbon extracts. Um, yeah. And so can you speak a little bit to some of the dynamics that influence those final products? Yeah, for sure. So one of the reasons that hydrocarbon products have that, you know, wide range in texture and consistency is because they have the potential to extract the acid form. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of cannabinoids, the acid form and the, you know, the decarboxylated uh, form of that cannabinoid have different physical um, states. So, for example, THCA is, you know, a solid colorless crystalline product at room Mm -hmm. temperature, whereas, um, you know, Delta 9 THC is, uh, you know, a colorless liquid at room temperature. And so that's a big difference in consistency. So if my concentrate is mostly THC Delta 9, I'm going to get sticky liquid because Delta 9 is a sticky liquid. But if I've got mostly THCA... I am going to have a primarily dry solid. And so, um, you know, that first differentiation in ratio of, you know, THC versus THCA or, you know, CBD versus, you know, THC Mm -hmm. um, makes a big difference in, you know, just the potential consistency that I've got in front of me, especially because um, I don't want to say decarboxylation can't be reversed, but... uh, but generally, we're not we're not going back from that. Um, so once we have crossed into that decarboxylated yeah. state, you know, once I've got CBD, I've got a solid. Once I've got delta nine, I've got a liquid. And so the hydrocarbon extraction process allows us to play with that texture a little bit more because we can start with a dry product and go liquid mm-hmm. or not. Yeah. So um, so that already makes a big difference. It's just the dominant compound in any given solution is going to dictate, you know, the, the structure that it takes on. Then from there, we have, you know, the other minor groups that are involved. Mm-hmm. Now, hydrocarbon extraction is also um, excellent for terpene extraction yeah. because it happens at low temperature. So we don't destroy them. And 
they're soluble, um, you know, in yeah. butane and propane. So we're able to capture a lot of them. Um, we also have the added benefit through hydrocarbon extraction um, of being able to extract wet or fresh frozen material because it doesn't take on water content in the same mm -hmm. way that 5,000 PSI worth of CO2 <laughs> right. or any given amount of ethanol will. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so we have, uh, you know, the potential to not only extract more terpenes because they're compatible solvents, but also because we can capture terpenes from the plant material before it has dried out, before those have changed, um, before those have evaporated. And so um, that terpene content is mostly liquid. Some terpenes are yeah. solid at room temperature, but mostly we're dealing with liquids. And so the amount of terpene content in any given hydrocarbon extracted product has a huge impact on that liquid versus solid situation because mm. those terpenes can dissolve that solid cannabinoid. Yeah, yeah. And so why we might have 90%, you know, solid THCA cannabinoid content, we might still have something that looks half liquidy because right. those terpenes can actually dissolve quite a bit of it and keep it in solution. So, um, you know, that, that recipe gives us a lot of options. Um, and that's just based on what it contains, regardless of what I might do to it. If mm -hmm. I just pour it out of my extractor and here it is. Right. Then from there, um, because we have that acid form, um, because we have some of these solids, we have the potential for crystallization. Mm -hmm. Or, um, you know, in the opposite route, we have the potential for, um, you know, an emulsified or homogenized product. And so, you know, shatter, wax, butter, those kinds of things are generally homogenous products. Um, right. You know, shatter is everything mixed up and, you know, solid and flat, whereas the butter and the wax is everything whipped up and actually aerated. Mm -hmm. um, but in either case, uh, basically the same original content, which is way more THCA than that liquid terpene content, which allows it to be, you know, dry rather than yeah. wet. And then from there, it's just, you know, how we play with it. You know, it's kind of, at that point, it's yeah. kind of how do you take your eggs? You know, you like right. to scramble, do you want yeah. the sunny side up? Um, <laughs> You know, so for me, I always I try to pay attention to that chemical content first mm -hmm. um, because it's a good indicator. If I really care about flavor, I probably don't want dry textured mm -hmm. products because right. inherently I'm going to have less. Yeah. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And how does the um, the material coming in affect some of that process? One of the things that um, I was going to ask you is... Um, you know what it's like working you you mentioned fresh frozen so mm -hmm. like the difference between like um uh different types of uh like live resin and cured resin and you know these different um attributes that relate to the flower material as it's coming in um what are some of yeah. the big differences there um there are so many important qualities for your extracted product um i think uh, one of the most obvious ones that a lot of people fail to pay attention to is surface area. When uh, we look yeah. at big, pretty buds <laughs> that, you know, we're putting in a jar, we're selling on a shelf, we look at them like flowers, you yeah. know, and we want them to have a nice clean cut. And we mm -hmm. want, you know, like we have these um, very aesthetic, uh, you know, perceptions about what is good and what is bad. And that is super irrelevant to me for extraction. Uh, yeah. All I care about is resin content and big dense buds have less of it by weight than little fluffy buds that aren't that very dense sense. because yep. the surface area is greater 
by weight on those products. And so, um, you know, the type of material that you want to provide for extraction um, isn't these big, dense, rock-solid nuggets. Uh, those are annoying. <laughs> those take me time to break up. And break, it's yeah. literally more plant material versus resin. If I, you know, grind up a big, dense bud, homogenize it, and get an analytical test on that, I get totally different results than if I take the same amount of weight of small little fluffy buds, mm -hmm. grind it up and homogenize it. They literally have more resin. And that's all that matters to me for extraction. Um, however, the, you know, where it grows on the plant certainly has an impact on uh, the other chemical content that right. it's going to contain, um, you know, especially terpene content that is produced generally to protect the plant from exactly. its local environment. And so it would only stand to reason that the buds on top are going to smell, um, you know, and respond differently than the ones on the bottom because they've got different jobs as far as that plant is concerned and they've got different enemies. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, so there's definitely a really, um, important role that just the actual harvested nug, um, plays, mm -hmm. you know, not only in where it comes from on the plant, um, but the surface area, the density, and even the time of harvest, you know, every single day that you push that harvest, it produces different terpene mm -hmm. content. Um, it does, you know, that terpene content doesn't store up the way that cannabinoid content does. Yeah. It doesn't accumulate. And so if you harvest on a day when it isn't smelling amazing, that's all I've got to work with, you know? Yeah. And if you harvest on a day when it smells outstanding and you freeze instantly, I can get that. I can get that back. I can preserve it. Um, so, you know, the care that's taken during harvest is incredibly important for some of those volatile compounds. And I, you know, I try to pay very close attention to that and, you know, the people that we want to work with are people who are also going to care about that. It's difficult to yeah. get that kind of attention and care for your products if you're just, you know, massively harvesting everything on a 45 schedule, regardless of what's happening in the room, mm -hmm. um, you know. And so sometimes that kind of massive factory approach to it is not ideal for some of the boutique flavors. Um, however, yeah. uh, if we're just trying to extract cannabinoid content, you know, well, we can get it from whatever you've got. Um, right. You know, there's still some other things to consider, uh, like literally the density of the cuticle, you know, how much wax content yeah. Yeah. that um, trichome contains. Um, you know, if you've got really thick trichomes, I'm probably going to get lower yields from mm -hmm. your material. Uh, not only um, because I, it probably just contains less resin, but also because the resin is going to be less accessible to me um, because removing waxes is right. You're going to lose almost some of the that same too. process as removing cannabinoids. And so mm -hmm. um, it becomes more difficult to get, uh, you know, or, or therefore at least less cost efficient to get a really clean yield. And so, um, you know, some of that chemical content is, you know, really valuable. And that's something that the people who work in like the rosin space are starting to pay a lot of attention to because mm -hmm. high wax content is, um, you know, one of the highest risks associated with their products and it also contributes to their low yields and so yeah. if they can identify that um you know wax content while they're growing it they could impact it they could change it they could improve on it and reduce it and actually um grow plants that could produce five six percent you know um yields on that rosin which would would change yeah. their business model completely right so, entirely um, yeah you know so those things you know affect all of us uh not just rosin that's also something that's important for us with hydrocarbon um extracted products and so 
that that quality is is really important. Um, the other thing I think that would be important to pay attention to is transparency. Um, you know, we we only know that it's free of the pesticides we test for. <laughs> Yeah. Yep. We only know that it's free of the mycotoxins that we test for at the time we test it. At the time. It. Yeah. Um, yep. You yep. know, like like a lot of that data is not quite complete, and so um, we have to be able to trust who we work with, and we all have to be open about that trust because sometimes we don't know that we're doing yeah. something wrong. Sometimes, you know, sometimes it is leaving their facility clean and getting moldy in my, you know, fridge, uh, like my freezer, fridge storage. So like, you know, we all have to be able to be open with each other and and work together to resolve those issues. Um, You know, like it's, it's really difficult uh, to do a good job if you don't have someone who's willing to be transparent, bring you into the garden and, um, you know, involve you in that, you know, harvest process so that you can both make clean and sustainable products. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. I, I remember when I was working in the testing labs how sad it was when, you know, a cultivator would end up with a testing result that they weren't expecting. Right. Um, you know, or kind of like uh, what you're mentioning, like in a wholesale situation where the farmer sold it, it was good. When it went to the wholesaler, it sat at the wholesaler's facility for who knows how long. They retested it, and it comes back, and then they're trying to hunt down what happened, who's at fault. Mm-hmm. And sometimes there's a lot of money involved in, you know, right. you know, some of these um, transactions. And yeah, sometimes it was devastating to see some of these farms that actually were putting in a lot of good energy, trying to do things as best as possible. And then somewhere, you know, along the chain, um, things go wrong and they don't understand why. And, and sometimes couldn't figure it out, you know, what happened. Like somebody wouldn't f- fess up to, some part right. of something and sometimes it's it's really um you know things you you wouldn't necessarily expect one time i remember a guy um uh, had failed for pesticides and then realized that someone on his garden used a hose that was used on another yeah. farm you know sure. that that sprayed pesticides yeah. and he just didn't keep track of you know that hose um so yeah it's it's a it's a process that the industry's you know learning all of these nuanced pieces right. of it because you can understand the high level of like okay I, you know i'm not going to use pesticides i'm not going to do this etc mm-hmm. um and then all these other factors come into play that you don't imagine right um, and it's and it's easy to villainize you know who's at fault and right. say you know like any failure is unacceptable you know but <laughs> right um but who's at fault is not as important as how to remediate it. Exactly. You know, yeah. like like what's most important is figuring out what happened and why so that it can't happen again, not yep. so that we can dissolve our relationship and um, <laughs> you know, say bad things yeah. about each other on the internet. Like the the point is to move forward. We have all failed before. Yep. We have all done a bad job somewhere. You know, just because you've never failed a pesticide test doesn't mean you wouldn't fail any pesticide tests. You've just never failed the tests you've taken, you know? Um, And, you know, there's just so many ways that things can go wrong that, you know, we have to find people to work with that have the the same, you know, ethics and morals and intentions as we do so that we can work through them together. Um, You know, like bad business deals are what sink otherwise, you know, strong, well-intended businesses. And, 
a lot of that comes from this very, um, you know, like all in or all out kind of attitude yeah. that we tend to have rather than working through it together to improve, you know, these relationships yeah. should be long term. Yeah. And, um, you know, just because the industry is new doesn't mean we can't come at it with that kind of diplomacy and, you know, with a yeah. structure that allows us to, you know, prepare for things going wrong. Cause right. it does. Yeah, we're human. Like mistakes are gonna happen. Like despite anyone's best effort, things are right. gonna go wrong. And it, you're right. It's how you respond to that and how you move forward that really is is most critical. And in general, what most of us want to see is for the industry as a whole to learn and figure out its problem areas and then address those. Teach you know as many people as we can to spread that knowledge and then see the industry get, you know, better and better it's to see yeah. quality improve and safety improve. And, um, and ev everybody, you know, yeah. Um, mature along this industry together. So, um, but yeah, there's, there's a lot of like, I don't know, it's, it's weird coming into the cannabis industry, seeing some of the like drama that goes yeah. on among the companies and, and the people and so much, um, you know, uh, egos fighting egos <laughs> that it's it's weird right. it's like being in middle school again sometimes yeah well it gets the thing is that everyone makes it so personal yeah um but like it took many persons yeah. you know to accomplish that even if it was one guy who used an old hose in this mm -hmm. garden you know, like that choice affected everyone. And so yeah. that means that everyone was responsible for making sure that there wasn't old hoses. Right, exactly. You know, like, yeah. like, yeah, he's the guy who used it, but there was probably two or three other humans who could have helped prevent it, right. you know, and there was probably a few people down the line um, who could have done something about it. You know, like there's ways to work through it. Um, and, you know, pointing the finger at who's at fault is just, uh, it's like our, you know, our first petty instinct yeah. But it doesn't serve anyone, you know, um, yeah. and that and that goes, you know, for even even small issues like, you know, getting low yields. I would rather mm -hmm. go back to a farmer and say, you know, my yields are poor from this material. Um, you know, like, let's work on a way to improve this, not say I'm not going to pay you this much for this material and I'll never do business with you again. You know, which is <laughs> right. which is how most people would respond is they would get, you know, they would get upset. They would blame someone. They would say, you're just bad at this, um, you know, and they expect perfection. It's so much easier yeah. to work together and, you know, take someone who gives you low yields into giving you even higher yields than you get from your high yield suppliers, um, you know, at the same price you started with. You know, like these long term right. relationships keep us all in business. And I think they're the only things that will protect us from large financial interests replacing yeah. us later because they will have to do it all themselves. Um, if we don't work together, we're not going to compete. Yeah, no, I, th I think that is um, absolutely the case. And, you know, it's cool to see organizations like, um, you know, from the Future 4200 Forum, the Good Life Gang, you know, to see these companies that are sharing SOPs and, you know, information yeah. and trying to create that robust network, you know, that'll hopefully right. be able to to survive. It's that's been uh, really cool to see. And, and even, you know, on the farm side, too, we're seeing more and more kind of uh, um, farms that are trying to find ways to work together and kind of co-op situations, figure out how to um, not necessarily have to fall into that trap of, like, large monoculture, you know, big ag scale cultivating, right. be able to keep doing things the way they want. 
in a more sustainable way, but work together to provide enough material that, you know, these accounts that want to buy massive amounts at once, they'll still have their, you know, their weight there. But um, I wanted to check in with you for just a minute because we've been going for almost an hour. How are you on yeah. time? Um, I'm good right now cool so. okay excellent well um the next question i wanted to ask you is related to a hashtag that you make a lot about your classes that uh -huh. i'm just probably ignorant and don't know what it means so i wanted to ask you while i was talking to you aquatech what sure. does that mean um so aquatech is kind of a marketing term um and uh basically it refers to the methodology that we developed um which is a chromatography application using um you know butane and propane right gotcha. in the column and so the idea was to um, perform that, uh, you know, chromatography separation in the original extraction solvent, although you can apply this to crude oil that's been extracted from almost anything else. It just poses different um, issues, sure. um, all, all which are fun challenges to work through for me. Right. Yeah, exactly. Puzzles. <laughs> yep. Um, but yeah, so the idea there is um, that using chromatography, we are able to have our liquid phase, our solution, moving through um, a solid phase of media. And that media um, is going to separate our solution by polarity, which allows us to um, extract our terpenes very quickly, very cleanly, mm. get them out of the extractor and away from heat right away. And then um, we get to pull out pull apart the rest of our solution. And so depending on the uh, column that you build and the media that you mm -hmm. use and the parameters that you put in place, um, you know, we're modeling this after flash chromatography. Yep, that's but it allows us to, uh, to separate, you know, kind of by category first, terpenes, cannabinoids, waxes, and, you know, water solubles. Mm -hmm. So we're able to get extremely high purity crystallization results almost instantly mm. because we've reduced our solution down mm -hmm. to simpler parts, yeah. um, which is uh, exciting from, you know, an efficiency perspective because it mm -hmm. means even less post-processing from, right, exactly. you know, which, you know, crystallization is already nothing, you know, so that's <laughs> an easy post-process for most people. And, you know, even in the pharmaceutical world, like it's, that's something that we've, you know, got down. Um, but this is just a fantastic shortcut. You're 99% right out of the extractor, um, you know, almost every time. Yeah. Um, but then it also does allow us to um, pull that terpene content out separately. So it's not interfering with crystallization mm -hmm. and also not exposed to some of the same temperatures and conditions that we would potentially expose our cannabinoids to. So that allows me to yeah. remove the butane and propane at different temperatures, um, you know, and under different conditions than it takes for me to remove butane and propane from, you know, that crystalline dry product. So now sure, I get yeah. to treat each of these compounds appropriately yeah and bring yep. them back together later so yeah. um anything that's aquatech is a formulated product um it didn't come out of the extractor that way it came mm -hmm. out of the extractor in multiple fractions mm -hmm. and we and then... pulled the best parts out of it which are subjective i decided what i liked the best yeah. for the most part um you know it's also based yeah. on analytical testing and you know where the clean parts of our product are but mm -hmm. um in that way, we're able to pull flavonoid content. We're able to pull terpene content. We're able to get high purity cannabinoid content. And then we can deliver it back to the consumer in consistent ratios. Yep. So, you know, like one, your question earlier of like explain these different textures. A lot of times those textures are based on what came out of the extractor. So right. if I didn't get a lot of terpenes, but I got a lot of cannabinoids, here you go. I've got a whole bunch of dry wax or I've got really stable shatter. Mm -hmm. And if I do get a lot of terpenes and I still have a decent amount of cannabinoids, now I've got wet sugar. Now I've got greasy batter. Now I have 
chatter yeah. that won't stabilize, you know? Um, but I'm taking it from the entire other approach, which is get everything out of the plant, mm-hmm. pull it into my different jars. Now I have ingredients I and I make whatever I want. Yep. So I can make stable shatter from there. I can redissolve my THCA content back into butane and propane and pour it out as a slab, or I can whip it up together with some terpenes, or I can crystallize it into diamonds. I can do, I can decarb it. And, you know, mm-hmm. now I can have Delta 9 and THC, you know, yeah. like I can make whatever I want every single time. And I can still preserve the live resin profile that the plant gave me. Um, but I can make whatever I want every single time, which is uh, an enormous value because yeah, sometimes huge. you don't get the ratios of things and you know <laughs> that you're looking for. It's, right. it's really common to have more THCA content um, than pairs nicely with terpene content. <laughs> and so it's great to not just have to dilute the flavor. Yeah, yeah. You know, I can just pull that THCA aside put that into Delta nine and, you know, put it in carts. I can do whatever I want with it and, you know, maintain that profile of the plant with a consistent cannabinoid content, which especially for medical patients is important because they, um, you know, are only just now starting to figure out why sativa or indica Mm -hmm. is too broad of a, you know, category. And so we start telling them to pay attention to these terpenes, but they do also still have to pay attention to the dose. The cannabinoid dose matters. And so um, if I can provide the same cannabinoid content every time, but different flavors, I I can't say that it's good for anything. I'm not allowed to make any health claims. Um, But if I'm consistent, then you can figure out what works for you. Exactly. And you can take a bigger or a smaller dab. Or you could tell me that that ratio is not cool and I can literally change it. I right. Can make whatever yeah. I want. Well, that's, that's really exciting. Cause I mean, you're, you're talking about making standardized product, which is so needed in the industry. And when I'm, you know, doing seminars or teaching folks, I always talk about journaling as far as, you know, when people talk about what, what'll work for this or that or the other, I'm like, the only way you're going to figure that out is by paying attention to right. how your body reacts to different things. And journaling is a great way. Yep. And one of the limitations that, um, you know, people are running into with journaling is the inconsistent product formulations. You know, if they prefer extracts, they will usually hone in on maybe just the THC or CBD values um, mm-hmm. and maybe won't focus too much on other things. Or they are paying attention to terpenes and anything else they can get data on, but batch to batch is just, you know, changing. Right. Um, so that's, that's really exciting. Cause that it fixes a variable and yeah, can allow I'm just people trying to... to cut them down. You know, we've right. only got like 300 variables per batch and I just <laughs> right, want yeah. just one fewer if I can <laughs> right, make it yeah. work. Um, you know, and, and anecdotal data or journaling is still data, you know, like mm-hmm. all, all we need to understand it is more data. It is a right. lot more data but it's attainable. And so even yeah. if, you know, if every person who smoked wrote down how it made them feel and we fed that to a computer, the algorithm would be accurate. Yeah. You know, like it would tell us what it does. Right. Um, you know, so we, wherever that data comes from, it's extremely valuable. And especially for the people who need it most, write it mm-hmm. down. You know, yep. I mean, I can't be expected to remember what temperature I did something at during my extraction. Mm-hmm. I write it down. Yep. You cannot be expected to remember how your headache, how fast your headache went away when you <laughs> right. were high at the time. You know, like these are yeah. 
these are things that, uh, you know, we really benefit from if people can write it down and Mm -hmm. more data is available than ever before. I, you know, we go a step above um, and put terpene content on every single package that we sell. So every single terpene is listed along with the, well, I shouldn't say every single, every single terpene we can test for is listed (laughs) um, as well as the um, ratio. And then all of that's available on our website too. So even if you just write down, you know, I tried this Cushman's batch this one time, you can go back in time, look on our website and figure out, you know, like that Cushman's had a lot of CBG in it. Yeah, yeah. In addition to having a lot of pinene, terpenaline, whatever, you know, like you can start to pull all of the pieces of data together. And the more data I get, the more data I'll put out. Um, but I don't have the ability to predict what it's going to do for anyone. Mm-hmm. I can't say that it's good or bad. I'm relying on the plant itself being ideally safe and right. giving me, you know, a, a, a profile of chemical content that is beneficial and the only way I'll know is after people provide feedback on that. And so, yep. you know, I, I believe strongly in my method because it allows me to make changes, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and I'm not just stuck with whatever has happened inside yeah. of my extraction system, you know, that I can, I can make it work for people, which is really exciting. You know, yeah. I mean, I, I love sweet flavors and good dabs. I love that it's available recreationally, but, um, the medical products that we produce are, you know, generally a disservice to the people who need them most. And so I, you know, I hope that through this method, we're able to make, um, you know, the right chemical profiles super cheap for people. You know, I think it sucks that, um, you know, it's easier for people to get high THC products at a low price, but Mm -hmm. not two to one CBD THC products at a low price, you know, Um, you know, like I, I would love to, figure out what those ratios are and make those medical products available through our current system rather mm-hmm. than forcing the pharmaceutical industry to take on that role. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And and the the overall just cost of cannabis products generally for medical patients, I I'd, I'd like to see some states try to fix that problem. It's something that in a lot of the uh, doctors I've interviewed, um they bring that issue up that when I ask them about um dosaging um, a lot of times, uh, interview I did very recently with a pain physician in North Carolina that's working with, um, patients using CBD. He was like, well, you know, our patients, the ones that are, you know, really in severe chronic pain, a lot of times they're either poor or they're elderly. Um, they don't have a ton of money to spend on, you know, uh, yeah. <laughs> on trial these- and error, first right. of all. Let exactly. alone just the regular cost of these products. Yeah, exactly. And Usually so, they can afford to try it once, and if they don't get the results they're looking for, they give right. up on it. It's exactly, a- yeah. Yeah, that's um, something that's that's been on my mind, is how many people have given up quickly. Especially, so now we can loop back around to talk about the CBD industry, because um, that's where right now I see this like really highlighted with so many people flocking to buy CBD products and they're all over the board as far as quality and potency and pricing uh, with some of them extremely expensive. And you've got these people trying to treat very severe medical conditions that are spending $150, $200 on a one ounce bottle of a CBD tincture that may have like 300 or 500 milligrams in the whole bottle. Um, 
it's it's um, really fascinating. I, I did want to actually come back around. You mentioned some of your um, thoughts about quality issues related to the CBD industry and the extractions yeah. going to CBD. Uh, so do you mind talking about that? What is unique about what's going on in the CBD industry and what has you a little concerned? Yeah, so the, the hemp world is extremely unique and it's very strange. Um, because in, you know, in the traditional, you know, medical marijuana or recreational markets, it's all, um, you know, these are all state programs, right? Yeah. So, of course, they vary because the states vary. A lot of these states have home rule, which means that not only the state rules are in effect, but also every municipality can yep. do whatever yeah. they want. And so you see um, in that licensed structure a huge range of requirements from the safety and architecture of the building all the way out to um, you know the solvents that are allowed to be used and you know what is required to be tested for and what isn't um, you know so the the regulations are all over the place within that framework in the CBD world it's um, it's kind of this like extreme polar opposite land where <laughs> yeah. we have you know, some actual federal regulations in place. We have truly GMP, USDA, mm -hmm. you know, certified facilities that are manufacturing pharmaceutically pure compounds start to finish. And then you have literally anyone <laughs> anywhere in the world making yep. a bath bomb in their living room and selling it as medicine, you know, to whoever will buy it, you know, like yeah. there's... Um, so that, you know, that spectrum is absolutely insane because there's not enforcement on anyone except the people who are doing perfect things. Yeah. And the people who are doing the perfect pharmaceutically pure compounds, um, you know, those are all going to formulations and, you know, a lot of times there's like white labeling or they're just selling right. a bulk yeah. product. And so, you know, it doesn't mean that small businesses aren't, you know, having access to that level of purity necessarily. Mm -hmm. But there's just no chain of custody mm -hmm. monitoring whatsoever. And so, you know, it's really, it's a really scary place to be. Um, I've gotten about a dozen messages today already because we have our first potential confirmed CBD death. I, I saw that. I don't know if you yep. read about yep. that. So we have no data about that. I don't even want to make any, um, you know, comments because I haven't been able to read enough about what was being referenced in there. But um but it's not surprising at all that drug interactions right. would be our first, you know, actual cannabinoid-induced yep. death because drug interactions are known. And when we break it mm -hmm. down, it's all just chemicals. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, this one company that made this one product is going to burn alive probably yeah, yeah. Uh, over this issue. Um, but it affects everyone. But it affects everyone, and it doesn't mean that they're the only ones who are, you know, creating a product that could cause this, you know, much like the vape, you know, crisis of mm -hmm. 2019. Like we, <laughs> yeah. even now, we still don't know yeah. that vitamin E acetate caused the death. Exactly, we just know yeah. that it was in all of their lungs um, and not even all of them, just most, you know, like mm -hmm. we, we still don't have yeah, explanations. That common factor has still yeah. not really been identified. Right. So we get more data and more data and more data, but we still don't have a complete picture you know we're yeah. still missing huge pieces in our puzzle um we just have to keep working forward on it and so the cbd world um is in a unique position to innovate faster 
because yeah. they don't have the same regulations that we do. Um, they also are in a position to infiltrate the public domain faster and influence the public's opinion of how cannabinoids are bought and sold, which yeah. is exciting in a lot of ways. I, you know, people make fun of gas station CBD, but I think that if we're going to sell cigarettes at a gas station, if we're going right. to sell liquor yeah. at a gas station, if we're going to sell sugar and caffeine yep. at a gas station, sure, we should be able to sell weed at a gas station. Why not? Mm -hmm. All cannabinoids yeah. should be able to be sold at a gas station if one of them can. So I, I appreciate, you know, the way that um, some of that underground CBD pushes the boundaries yeah. Um, you know, in those, you know, very honestly political ways, um, mm -hmm. you know, because it does, you know, give, give me hope about a future where I can still make a craft concentrate that people can buy because yeah. the other end of that spectrum where they're making 99.999% pure compounds and formulating them back into, you know, a gel cap or whatever, um, is way is boring. That's not what I, you know, like mm -hmm. it's very, it's very cool to build. And then I don't want that factory job. I want to keep innovating new things. Yeah, and so, yeah. you know, that pharmaceutical world should exist, but, um, but I want to see both. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the things that happen in between those two that are dangerous jeopardize all of it. Yeah. Which yeah, is exactly. Really unfortunate because only those big ones have the potential to survive that FDA world. But if we mm -hmm. don't have the market to support them, then they all go out of business. And we're watching that happen this year in the hemp industry. We are yeah. seeing some of the biggest players who had the most money yep. and the biggest extractors and just millions of dollars in infrastructure right now that aren't going to, you know, they yeah. probably won't even plant. Yep. Um, and so that's, that isn't encouraging for our industry. I don't want to see the money fall out. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's been wild the past year seeing how many big names are folding or going under a change of ownership, right. um, trying to totally restructure to stay alive. Mm -hmm. um, it's been really, really bizarre. And yeah, the uh, that CBD death, I just saw that several hours ago or right. sometime this morning. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those things that we, those of us that have kind of studied cannabinoids and, and particularly CBD for a while, we've all known that like, yeah, the grapefruit effect, you know, is a thing with CBD and, you know, CBD seems to exhibit, you know, a higher potency, um, than even grapefruit does and having that effect. And it's, um, it's one of those things that, you know, the market seems to be too far ahead of where, um, you know, like the medical establishment is that like a lot of doctors don't know that and a lot of right. nurses don't know that. Um, and I feel like if they did, they would probably inquire more about whether patients are using CBD, you know, mm -hmm. when they're on other drugs, that sort of thing. And, um, it's, it's one of these risks that could be mitigated with education and proper involvement between, you know, the patient and doctor relationship and that sort of thing. Um, but it's also one of these things like you're alluding to that, um, you know, something wrong can happen and it's going to affect the entire industry um, in major ways. If, you know, people start dying from drug interactions from CBD and then you have um, new regulations that come in that affect how cannabinoids can exist on the marketplace or, mm -hmm. you know, and then that's going to affect all of these other companies all over a risk that could be mitigated. Yeah. Um, you know, just with proper education and, and oversight right. and recognition of something's own risks and limitations. I feel like the 
the cannabis industry and particularly with CBD right now, it's an interesting place because people really don't like talking about risk at all. Like they yeah. don't want to acknowledge that cannabis has any negative, you know, potential. And mm. it's something that as an in industry, we've really got to get over um, because it's going to keep causing problems and it makes the industry look bad if you can't acknowledge, you know, the relatively few, you know, risks that actually exist with cannabis compared to a lot of other natural products. Um, right. Like safe is a spectrum, you know, yeah. and poison is in the dose. Exactly. And so yeah. we can't pretend that cannabis is the exception to, you know, like the most common fundamental rule of what we put in our bodies, you know, yeah. like it matters how much and it matters mm -hmm. what, yep. um, you know, and I, I don't like Obviously, I don't like to see anyone die from, you know, anything preventable, let alone from cannabis. But I don't like to, um, you know, to open ourselves up to, you know, demonizing, you know, the, you know, the word cannabis represents 400 different potential active ingredients. And we can't, yeah. you know, we can't say, oh, well, now CBD is bad, you mm -hmm. know, or, oh, well, now just CBD tinctures is bad or just CBD over 200 milligrams a day. You know, like we just mm -hmm. we can't generalize it. Um you know, but we can specialize. We can mm -hmm. say these drug interaction issues were known. Mm -hmm. And, you know, all you have to do is, you know, talk to your doctor or at least research, mm -hmm. you know, the, the drugs that you're using. Um, you know, if if more people, like you said, just knew the grapefruit, like it's a, such a simple thing to communicate that says if your drug says that you cannot um, consume grapefruit and citrus, you should avoid cannabinoids as well. Right. Um, you know, like proliferating that is something that would be extremely important information for all of the prescribing doctors who write re medical recommendations, because I bet yep. there's a large portion of them that aren't, um, you know, keeping up on that data. Not to mention every single bud tender, because they're not medical professionals, but every single one of them is yeah. making recommendations yep. every single day about dose. Yep. And, and we don't we don't have any good data to support what is safe and what isn't. Um, so I, you know, I hope that this brings the right attention mm -hmm. to those yeah. issues, um, you know, because it's easier to abuse a product that's more readily accessible. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but we, we really need to address what that abuse looks like before it just all gets taken away. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, that relates to another idea that came up in uh, one of my really early interviews about, like, what does responsible cannabis use look like and trying to, yeah. like, have that discussion and, like, mm -hmm. you know, being able to have, like, an elevator pitch kind of response to that. Like, what does that look like, especially as, you know, legalization progresses and people, you know, are able to have more open, honest conversations with adolescents and young kids and stuff about, you know, cannabis, like, yeah, how do how do we talk about the risks in a mature, honest way? How do we talk about responsible use in a mature, honest way? Right. And, you know, and going back to this theme that keeps coming up of, you know, being able to just make the industry better, increase, um, you know, support public health and safety, and just overall as a society, just be better um, yeah. and handle these things in a more mindful way. Um, yeah, yeah it's important. It's something I think about constantly because I have, you know, a two-year-old now. So yeah, I have a one-year-old. Yeah. So it, yeah. it's something I think about a lot because, you know, my parents never consumed any cannabis in their lives yeah, to this day. Um, yeah. And so it was easy for them to say, abstain. Mm -hmm. You know, like, yeah. like even if, 
they were wrong about saying it was unsafe. Um, you know, like they were in a position to just, you know, not use. Whereas, um, you know, I'm going to be in a completely different position when I talk to my son about it, um, mm -hmm. because I'm going to, I'm going to have to justify my use. Yeah. Um, you know, at a minimum, let alone, um, you know, be able to justify my recommendations on his. And mm -hmm. I have no idea what that's going to be. Yeah. Because I don't even know, like, by the time he gets exposed to cannabis, we might not even be smoking flour anymore. You know right. what I mean? Yeah, like, no, we might yeah. just, like, download it into our, <laughs> right. like, AirPod. You know, like, I, don't, I have no idea what cannabis consumption is going to look like 10 years from now or 20 years from now. Because yeah, I never changed. would have predicted my life today you know, in 2009 mm -hmm. when I, you know, walked into a dispensary for the first time, yep. you know, yep. like, like I was still impressed by, you know, giant volcano vaporizer bags. Yeah. Back then. Yep. You know, yep. like Me the, the yep. world is different. And yeah. so, you know, how, how I communicate that is something I think about a lot because I educate adults. Mm -hmm. um, and that comes with the social contract of I'm not responsible for you. I'm going right, to tell you right. what I know yep. and you're going to interpret it and apply yep. it to your own life, but I'm not responsible for your choices. Uh, but I am responsible for my son's choices, yeah. you know, and I am responsible for, um, you know, the way he makes those decisions. And so I really, I hope that education is something that, you know, we can follow, you know, really hard, you know, like it, it was great to get rid of a lot of the dare um, you mm -hmm. know, scare tactic type of, uh, you know, fear mongering, but we can't just leave it at that. You yeah. know, we have to replace it with something yeah. valuable. If it turns out that, you know, all of these jewels are more dangerous than cigarettes, you know, than like telling kids not to smoke cigarettes and not being prepared right. to respond to the vaporizer situation, you know, was an epic failure. And yeah. so, you know, we're, we're in that same position with cannabis, um, you know, like edibles are crazy today and <laughs> I do not think kids should be going around eating dispensary edibles, you know, yeah. they'll, um, you know, I think that they don't have a good understanding of what that dose looks like. Mm -hmm. Whereas yeah. I at least did have, um, you know, the social knowledge of knowing the difference between drinking, uh, a whole bottle of beer versus a whole mm -hmm. bottle of tequila, right. you know, at 14 yeah. or at 16 or whatever. Um, but with cannabis, we don't we don't communicate that very well, and mm -hmm. we might put the milligrams on the package, but that doesn't mean anything to right. anyone. If, if Ibuprofen no is two hundred milligrams per dose, so yeah, two hundred milligrams of THC, right? right? Why not? Like we don't have any perspective um, that we provide to consumers, let alone mm -hmm. the unintended potential consumers. So um, I, you know, I really hope that the cannabis industry will uphold. Uh, you know, it's, it's original vows, um, you know, to yeah. take care of medical patients through that education. The more we learn about cannabis, the better those recommendations can mm -hmm. be. And, you know, we can explain these risks and hopefully prevent them, you know, uh, yeah. in the future. Does Colorado have potency limits on edibles? Um, so there's limits per package. It's 100 milligrams per package. And the recommended dose is 10 milligrams per piece. So whatever oh. your edible product is, it has to be easily identified um, 
as what 10 milligrams would represent. So that either mm-hmm. means like 10 pieces in yeah, a package segmented or, or whatever. you have to be able to break it up or notches on the drink that tell you how far to drink it down. Um, you know, something that makes hmm. it uh, easy, I guess, um, to yeah. figure out how much you've consumed at once. Yeah. And that's interesting too, because even 10 milligrams to like someone that is new to cannabis edibles or cannabis in general, I know people that... Right have consumed five milligrams and had started to have overwhelming experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So that, that context that you're talking about is so important. Um, uh, and yeah, edibles in general, it's so hard to get, um, I don't know, predictable effects um, from right. them, depending on oh, yeah. what you're eating and how they're made, what the dose is. Um, yeah. And your like metabolism. Some, and, exactly. What you've yeah. eaten during that day and how mm-hmm. that's going to affect it. And, you know, it's something like a drink. Um, it, I, I had some friends that were working in testing labs that were working on uh, trying to understand issues specifically related to drinks. But one of the things I saw recently is that the liner inside of um, aluminum cans and things actually are um, are lipophilic, and huh. cannabinoids will gather yeah. in, into them over time. So Perfect. the potency of the yeah. drink will change over time right. and will lower. Yeah. Um, which is fascinating. And then I know there's another issue with drinks that, uh, you know, depending on the pH, Mm -hmm. um, they're seeing some interesting conversions in some of the like, uh, THC infused sodas. Yeah. Um, so it just adds another layer of complexity to the, the edible market. Um, that, uh, I don't know. I, I really like the idea of these formulated extracts standardized. It also makes me wonder if, um, you know, having a product like that, that you could standardize and that you could define chemically that you could say, this has, you know, this much, um, of sort of the terpene class and of that class, there are these variations and, you know, this percent concentration of cannabinoid class and these variations that, you know, then researchers might be able to take something like that in the future and actually be able to start to, um, do some more interesting research with products that are more akin to what people are actually using in the, uh, Right. You know, in the actual market and understand how people react. And because um, that's uh, several clinicians uh, that I've spoken with have mentioned that, like, that's one of the big drawbacks of them wanting to push forward on some interesting clinical trial work is there's like, you know, where's the standardized product? Yeah. How do you get it? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's that's one thing that's always been really difficult for me um, is that, like, I, I want to make good products. I want to sell safe medicine you know I want to feel good about everything that I'm making but um but we're just relying on the plant to give us those chemicals yeah we're just relying on cannabis being great and that being good enough and that isn't good enough for literally any other type of extraction (laughs) you know that isn't good enough for any other type of product like you always have to you know consider all of those factors and um And so, you know, when we're trying to sell something that has dozens of active ingredients in a final product Mm -hmm. um, at concentrated doses, you know, compared to what they were originally delivered in, if you were to just consume raw flour, I, you know, I feel like there's a lot of responsibility there that I don't even have the data to back up, Mm -hmm. you know, like I can't say that more pinene is better or worse or safe. I can say I like it, you know, like right. but that doesn't help anyone else. And that doesn't, um, you know, that doesn't give me 
you know, a, a standard to work from necessarily, mm-hmm. which is what we need if we want to, you know, improve that data. And so, you know, one thing I'm really excited about is being able to now track um, through different harvests um, and even just age of material, uh, how that profile changes. Um, mm, because if I'm mm-hmm. extracting it the same way yeah. and I'm starting to see variations from the same producer, yep. now we can actually take that data back even further and say, what did you do on these plants that right. you didn't do on those plants? You know, like now we can, like it, I can do a better job extracting in the lab. That's great. But I could, I could influence the decisions yep. that help them ma- be a better grower. You yep. know, like I'm expected to, you know, test my product at every step in my process to make sure it's getting mm-hmm. pure. But do the growers go and test their bud every single week to see what right. it's growing, to see if that terpene profile is developing, to see if it's all limonene or if it's going to get better? Mm-hmm. You know, um, like we we don't hold them to the same analytical standards, but we could. Yeah, yeah. And, Absolutely. And yeah. that would make it easier for me. So that'd be great. But I, you know, <laughs> it would make it better for the consumer because they could be more consistent if they knew the impact that, you know, their behaviors had chemically on what I'm able to extract later. Yeah. I mean, ultimately it creates like a win-win-win situation because the right. farmer would just get better. It would help you with your process to be able to make standardized materials more easily, more mm-hmm. efficiently. And the consumer would be, you know, sort of have this itch scratch that's been there for so long of just like i just want to be able to get the same thing right you know, every time most i go people into the dispensary. Don't like change yeah most yeah. people want it to be the same and we can i that's the only thing i can't give you <laughs> I yeah can't give right you, unless you want just thca or just CBC, right yeah, yeah you know i can't i can't make it the same um yeah so that that feedback is invaluable both from the consumer and to the garden you know? yeah yeah totally well, um, to start to wrap things up here, I wanted to, there's like two sort of broad questions that I'll ask you. One is, um, what are some of the most prevalent misconceptions about either cannabis or cannabis extraction or extracts themselves that you encounter most frequently? Um, I mean, I think you brought up the the solvent scare already, mm-hmm, yeah. um, which is probably one of the most common ones is that people look at solvent extracted concentrates as being dangerous. Um, mm-hmm. And I would agree that most of them are dangerous to do, you know, the mm-hmm. the operation um, definitely requires skill, equipment, and, you know, safety protocols to keep everyone safe. Um, but generally, they're safe to consume. Um, however, mm-hmm. I think um, that the exact opposite is also true. Um, you know, one of the greatest misconceptions is that cannabis is inherently safe. Mm-hmm. And I would argue that cannabis is only as safe as the people who are growing and manufacturing it. Um, you know, cannabis is not a wild product anymore. It's not mm-hmm. Mother Nature. Yeah. And it doesn't love us. Um, you know, like it, it is a plant that's being grown mostly for profit um, by people. And people... Uh, you know, um, you, you got to choose who you trust. And so, um, you know, cannabis is only as safe as the people who've produced it. And the absolute same is true with concentrates. They are only as safe as the manufacturer who, um, you know, who processed them and packaged them and delivered them to you. And from there, they're only as safe as the person who's storing and consuming them. And so, um, you know, the, the misconception that cannabis is ultimately safe 
is, I think, potentially a dangerous one. We really want to pay attention to what we're doing with this plant because we keep doing new and exciting stuff and we keep discovering new things. And it's not uncommon uh, in science in general for us to be wrong. Right. And, uh, you know, there are parts of cannabis that can be very dangerous and there are parts of cannabis concentrates that can be very dangerous. And, um, you know, I think that those, uh, you know, it's not something that we should be afraid of, but it's something that we should absolutely be educated about. And um, no one's going to look for that education if we all operate under the impression that it is blanket safe. Yeah. You know, fire is safe if you don't touch it. Right. You know? Right. Like, exactly. You know, like we yeah. got to, <laughs> we yeah. have to, you know, consider those, um, you know, benefits and risks at all times. Yeah. Well, it's definitely been refreshing talking to you and hearing the um, balanced way, you know, that you approach all of this, being willing to acknowledge the downsides and risks as well as the, you know, the awesome potential and, and upsides and, and just being very real about, you know, acknowledging all of that. And um, I really enjoy hearing your perspective of, you know, that ultimately it's better for all of us if we can talk through these things, talk through our conflicts, try to work forward and, and ultimately, you know, all be the better for it. Um, so it's, yeah, thanks for, being willing to to come on and share that perspective and um, and all the great information that you've um, shared in the past, we've gone for almost an hour and a half. Um, so I really yeah. appreciate it. Of course, no, thank you for having me. I always enjoy, uh, you know, talking about cannabis and concentrates, um, and you know, especially to uh, in a way that'll educate some other people and hopefully, yeah, I think this start will be... some conversations they might not have otherwise had. Oh yeah, that's that's exactly my hope with the podcast in general is like, hopefully, you know, the things that, uh, the conversations we have, hopefully it stirs other conversations, um, and just helps drive things in a, in a good direction. Um, I want to make sure to give you, you know, the last couple minutes here, it, you know, pretty much, um, you have the platform, let people know how to find information about you or your classes or anything else that you want to share or promote. Feel free. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, uh, teach, public classes uh, twice a month at my lab and at other labs across the country and seem to be world. Um, And so um, depending on where you're at, there's a lot of different opportunities to get in touch with me. Um, But uh, you can always find out what's happening through my Instagram. Um, You can also keep up on my brand, Stanhope Gardens, um, the products that we're making. We, uh, of course, specialize in live resin and have vape cartridges and um, high purity extracts that are all available in Colorado, and that's sanogardens.com or sanogardens on Instagram. Um, we also have a uh, you know full service consulting team behind Sano Gardens, and that's through Nicola Consulting. And so we can help you with designing your lab, um, you know, improving efficiencies with your equipment, as well as partnering on um, product development. Our goal is uh, to see more high quality products on the market, whether that means that we help you produce them on your own or we work together to produce them as a team. Uh, we, we believe in elevating the space. So um, whatever we can do to help other people become better. Uh, and you also mentioned, you know, Future 4200, the forum and the Good Life Gang. Uh, I cannot recommend it enough. The Good Life Gang is a great place to find a new mentor. Um, and that's a membership program that gives you access, obviously, to discounts as well as to all of our uh, meetups across the country. If you're not involved in the cannabis industry and want to get involved, 
it's a great way to meet the right people first and um, find the, you know, the mentors and the people who can help help you land in, you know, the good, safe places, uh, you know, and the, um, yeah. you know, find people who share the, the values that you do. So goodlifegang.tech, check it out. Awesome. Yeah, well, that's great. Well, yeah, once again, thanks so much for giving me so much of your time and energy. I really, really appreciate it. And I've enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, totally. So if you want to learn more about Curious About Cannabis, you can check us out at cacpodcast.com. We're also on social media, primarily on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, uh, as well as YouTube. Um, So check us out there. Thanks so much for tuning in and listening. Take it easy. Bye-bye. If you want to learn more about cannabis, you can check out the Curious About Cannabis book, available now on Amazon.com and other online book retailers. The Curious About Cannabis podcast is presented by Natural Learning Enterprises a science education company dedicated to the enhancement of public scientific literacy through education about the natural world. Curious About Cannabis is just one of several learning initiatives produced by Natural Learning Enterprises. To learn more, go to www.naturallearningenterprises.com or connect with NLE on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter.